There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things. Things that act against everything we believe in. They must be the Doctor Who podcast. Welcome, listeners, to another exciting, tantalizing episode of the Doctor Who podcast. This is episode 325, and you are still most welcome. This time on the Doctor Who podcast, the next installation of Nine Lives, and some other stuff that James and I will make up along the way. James, it's good to be with you in the podcast again in the camper van. It is, as always, very good to speak to you, Michelle. Um, I'm glad you think this is going to be exciting and tantalising. And um, I didn't know Nine Lies came in installations, <laughs> but uh, but apart from that, <laughs> not that I'm pernickety or worried about uh, um, wordplay at all. Pernickety? Pedantic? I don't know. <laughs> How are you going to tantalise and excite? Let's tantalise, I think, by, by first exploring <laughs> Boomtown. Uh, lesser talked of gem in uh, Eccleston season. Mm. I'm certain if we can't if we can't be exciting, I'm certain that Ian and Drew will succeed. Absolutely, it's wonderful to have Drew back on the show again. It's it, it's always too long uh, between Drew's contributions to the DWP, and um, I, I I suppose that really means I should ask him more. But uh, the way things work out. I, I, I don't know why it doesn't happen. Drew, why aren't you here more often? This is a problem you need to fix. But uh, but in the meantime, let's have a listen to him catching up with Ian. Number nine, number nine, number nine, satellite five. 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 Number nine. This time on Nine Lives, Boomtown with Drew. Hi, Drew. Hey, how's it going? Now, we specifically wanted you to do this one because we previously in the series did Aliens of London and World War Three, And I don't think it's unfair for me to say you're slightly out of step from common fan opinion in this in uh, that not many people rate those particular episodes and you do and in fact not only do you rate them they actually you said introduced you to Doctor Who and is what made you a fan which I've never heard from anybody else so you were the obvious person to come back to when we had to look at the Slovene again so I mean if that was your introduction to the series and what made you a Doctor Who fan how did you find the second outing of the Slovene? Some clarification. I, I think I was a fan of those episodes. It wasn't my introduction to the series, since I, I did start with Rose, and then before that, the the 96 movie, uh, and then before that, comic books. But 
I am a fan of this Levine. I, I think there's something more to them than than what most fans see, which is farting aliens. And, and I agree, the episodes really, really drew my attention in. But it was less to do with this Levine and more to do with the story that Rose was gone for a year and coming back had consequences and just how the the companions were given a life outside of the TARDIS and and the ramifications of of that life uh, really were was important and this story really drew that in um you know having parents waiting for you uh, not going back for an entire year world war 3 and, and aliens of london there's again there's more to it than i think farting aliens interesting you talked about the subjects of consequences and there being a life outside of the tardis because i think possibly for the first time, maybe other than Father's Day, I think that's something that really hits home in Boomtown as well. I gather it's not always like this. Having to wait. I bet you're always the first to leave, Doctor. Never mind the consequences, off you go. You butchered my family and then ran for the stars, am I right? But not this time. At last you have consequences. Yeah, this is this is a this is kind of interesting because this one could have been called downtime, um, even if that story hadn't already existed. Uh, because, okay, let me ask you this, and I feel like this is one of those things where I should have done my research. But have we ever seen the TARDIS have to refuel before? It doesn't ring any bells. Yeah, and that's actually when I rewatched it just now, I thought I don't remember that ever happening before. But it's possibly one of those things that's hand waved as you know happening between series and you don't need to worry about it sure yeah yeah yeah. well i was just thinking like there's a lot of info dumps just kind of on the side with this story um it really sets up torchwood it sets up cardiff as being an area there's a lot of little snippets that will be referred to later the heart of the tardis and stuff like that will be referred to later um in the series even in this season that have nothing to do with the overall plot per se but needed to go somewhere and because this story uh, well, sorry, the series one is still kind of introducing new fans to the concept of Doctor Who. They can get away with stuff like that, where older fans were probably like, yeah, we don't need to see this stuff. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of consequences with this one, particularly with Mickey, and I think that's handled quite well and are some of my favorite parts of this episode. What was your favorite part of the episode? I mean, it's hard not to like the dinner scene with the Doctor and, and Margaret. Tell me then, Doctor... What do you know of our species? Only what I've seen. Did you know, for example, in extreme cases, when her life is in danger, a female Raxacoracophalopatorian can manufacture a poison dart within her own finger? Yes, I did. Just checking. And one more thing. Between you and me, as a final resort, the excess poison can be exhaled through the lungs. That's better. Now then, what do you think? Mm, steak looks nice. Steak and chips. I think it's done very well. It's done for comedy, but there's also some very serious consequences involved with it. And I think that's sort of what this episode really is, is discussing the consequences of actions and what happens after the fact. So we get a really interesting juxtaposition with the TARDIS crew landing back, having some downtime, and just going out to eat and having dinner. And, like, when was the last time that happened in Doctor Who where it didn't have something to 
to do with the overall plot. And so that kind of carefree, enjoyable storytelling, laughing, talking about things that happen off screen. But then what happens off screen, Margaret really refers to that. Like what happens when the adventure is over? Do you just walk away? How do you handle all that death, you know, spoken like a murderer and such? So I think there's there's a lot to ponder with this episode. It tends to be a bit of a forgotten story, this one, because it comes after so many, you know, real highlight episodes like Doctor Dances or Dalek or Father's Day, ones that really stick out in your mind as being big stories. And this one, the actual story itself, I think, is not a big story. I think downtime is actually a very good way of describing it. But watching it again now, I was struck with how many quality moments there were within it. I'm not to- I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Slitheen anyway, but it almost isn't a Slitheen story. You-, you barely see the Slitheen actually being a Slitheen. For most of it, it is, yeah, it's Margaret acting a- a- across from Christopher Eccleston. And I thought having those two really good actors just playing off of each other, and yes, yeah, some of it was a bit slapstick and fun, you know, the dinner scene notably with the the finger dart and things like that. But they also touch into some very serious topics and subjects. And I find, I mean, I did find I had to park some of the backstory. You know, the idea that the Doctor would have so much sympathy for this cold-blooded, you know, murderer, or that she would be any in any way credible as having sympathy when she was such a cold-blooded murderer. You've been in that skin suit too long. You've forgotten. There used to be a real Margaret Blaine. You killed her and stripped her and used the skin. You're pleading for mercy out of a dead woman's lips. Perhaps I've got used to it. A human life, an ordinary life. That's all I'm asking. Give me a chance, Doctor. I can change. I don't believe you. But I think if you sort of, you know, check that bit of uh, uh, suspension of disbelief in at the door, just seeing the actors play off against each other, there were some really good, interesting scenes there, lots of fun themes, lots of interesting themes. So while I don't, I don't think the story is particularly a notable story for plot reasons, I think there's some great performances and some great scenes, and it's an enjoyable thing to experience, if you see what I mean. Oh, absolutely. You know, the plot's garbage. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's just come out and say it right now. The fact that it's only been six months since Aliens of London and that part are for, for I guess, reality, um, that she somehow became a mare and has torn down a castle, an important historical artifact, and, and started plans to build a, a power plant. What? <laughs> no one in government is is that efficient. She, she did have the advantage of, of uh, killing every single team that was sent out to check her. It was a very, was it a very slippery ice patch? Funny thing is, when you start piecing it all together, it does begin to look a bit odd. In what way? The deaths. The number of deaths associated with this project. First of all, there was the entire team of the European safety inspectors. But they were French. It's not my fault if Danger Explosives was only written in Welsh. And then there was that accident with the Cardiff Heritage Committee. The electrocution of that swimming pool was put down to natural wear and tear. And then the architects? It was raining. Visibility was low. My car simply couldn't stop. And then just recently, Mr Cleaver, the government's nuclear advisor, slipped on an icy patch. He was decapitated. It was a very icy patch. I mean, like, she, we cannot stress en- enough how good Annette Bedland is in this. She's so both creepy, but also kind of joyous in her creepiness. Um, she is just a delight um, on and off camera. And, um, yeah, so, like, back to the plot. 
so they're gonna blow up blow up the planet and she's gonna surf away I mean that kind of feels like series one of Doctor Who uh, oh she didn't really want to surf away she wanted to attract some kind of ship that she could uh, leech the energy off of for this rift in space and time could she see that far ahead and if she was why would she even leave the TARDIS in the first place to go off the suggest going off the dinner you know, yeah hand wave all of that that's not what this episode's about this is this is great this is some really good moments hung together with a very flimsy plot um and this is this is about and it's funny because you know jack is in this i forget that jack was a regular companion sometimes uh he doesn't need to be in this episode it, it there's no no one point in this episode that he he's important to the plot this is really about the doctor and margaret and it's about mickey and rose and everything that happens in between and and really just kind of the referencing to what happens after the adventure is over or or the consequences of one's actions as we've we've mentioned on numerous occasions i think one of the other things too that we should not focus on a lot but just like i said moments ago it, it is an episode where mickey and rose do their relationship features fairly prominently because it's interesting that rose would come back specifically to see mickey and spend some time with him and even go to a hotel with him uh, but she won't stop talking about the doctor uh, and that it's clear like that's it for for mickey and the fact that the moment where he shouts you know you left me uh it, it's over for them and, and it, he's not going to say goodbye when she leaves you know he had that moment to actually call her out um and then rose leaves without double checking to make sure that mickey's survived the earthquake which is another really interesting thing. I mean, they they kind of stress getting second chances, and that's maybe the moment where Rose's ties to uh, her family sort of leave. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's there's going to be some consequences for that. And I think it's interesting that Mickey's character is elevated from being a bit of a figure of fun and a bit of a football to a character of sympathy and one that you actually do feel bad for and has a bit more depth to it whereas previously it was a bit of a throwaway character and i think that that's a an interesting place to, to to have taken it i still don't think the series ever did right by by mickey as a character because i just didn't know what to do with him um it's a shame but it's he's not going to be the first character that that happens to watching this again and i'm possibly going to get slightly pompous here i think this is where doctor who in the modern era started to have an arc started to have a backstory that was above the story of the week because up until now we've essentially had story of the weeks relatively self-contained maybe the odd throwback but here you not only have the through line of uh, the Slitheen that were left behind and the doctor coming back and dealing with that you've got the through line of mickey and rose's relationship and that coming back to the fore you've got as you mentioned the first time we see cardiff and the rift and we've come back to that as well and that's going to become really quite significant down the road for various different reasons not least of which being torchwood right and in fact i i was actually quite touched just to see Cardiff because it's the first time I know there's been a couple of scenes shot there but not knowingly shot there um and seeing them walking around what's become a bit of a mecca for Who fans in the UK seeing Yanto's memorial behind there before it was Yanto's memorial they actually filmed in front of it all that kind of stuff to me as a fan I found oh wow this is where it begins this is the first time we see all of those places that are going to turn up in many stories in the future um, we see the heart of the TARDIS, which is the Chekhov's gun for a couple of episodes for now. There's lots and lots of things being set up here that are then going to keep coming back and actually form these sort of arcy through lines. And of course, for the first time, they actually face up to Bad Wolf. 
yeah. and they say it outright. Those words have been following us around all season long, and that's that. I remember watching this the first time, and that instantly elevated it from a cute little Easter egg in the background for us fans to oh, this actually means something. There's actually something happening here. The Doctor has acknowledged it. So it's not just a nod to the fans. It's actually part of the story. I'm not sure. I mean, we'll talk about the payoff in a couple of episodes' time. But um, that, again, I thought was very significant that's, that we've actually created those backstories. And it lifts it above being story of the week, I think, in this story. It makes it quite pivotal. Yeah, agreed. I, it, I don't think you could have put all of that in any of the other stories. You might be able to sprinkle it in throughout this series um and i think this sort of late late in this series sort of locks it in as a kind of a key episode one of the things that's kind of fun is how quickly the doctor dismisses the fact that bad wolf is just a series of words and it's just a coincidence and the music turn on that one's really good because as he's recognizing why choose this word oh, i thought it sounded good you know what does it mean it means bad wolf you know these have been following us and the music is very ominous and then he's like oh never mind and it just kind of pops back into it how do you think of the name? What? Blythe Droog? It's Welsh. I know, but how did you think of it? Chose it at random, that's all. I don't know. Just sounded good. Does it matter? Blythe Droog. What's it mean? Bad Wolf. But I've heard that before. Bad Wolf. I've heard that lots of times. Everywhere we go, two words following us. Bad wolf. How can they be following us? Nah, just a coincidence. Like hearing a word on the radio, then hearing it all day. Never mind. There's a lot of there's a lot of comedy in this episode too. There's a it flips back and forth very well between humorous dialogue and then serious moments, and they, I think it happens like three or four times. It's well directed too. I think too. And Joe Hearn is on on this one, who's probably one of the better directors of this first series yeah no i mean overall i enjoyed it i thought it's it's fun it's not going to be one of those classic episodes no one's going to vote this in their top 10 stories of the new era but i think it's a good solid episode i think it does what it needs to do and it's enjoyable yeah um it, it's enjoyable to go back to and it's definitely worth a rewatch. You now sometimes you get the the filler episodes in a series although i'd argue there's no filler in season one and you can maybe, if you want to rewatch, you maybe skip a couple of those and stick to the high points. This is definitely not one of those. I don't think it's well worth a watch, and it's well worth putting the time in to actually go and watch it again, just because it's an enjoyable thing to, ha- to have in front of you. Yeah, and I don't think it's the worst episode of the series. Absolutely, and I heard a lot of people say it's forgettable and it's not worth doing, and, and it's definitely the low point. And I don't think it is. Um, or, well, I take that back. Frequently, people will say that uh, Aliens of London and, and World War Three are the low point of the series, and and again, I, I clearly don't think that as well. No, I, th- I think you're right. I think this is one that's worth a relook, just because maybe it feels like people might just forget about it or skip it, and uh, don't. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Ian. Michelle, Boomtown, Slovene, Annette Badlands. Yeah, you know what? I have to agree with with a lot of what Ian and Drew said. This is, uh, I've always liked Boomtown. Uh, 
I never remember the specifics of Boomtown other than that I enjoyed watching it. And you do picture that <laughs> you do you do picture the scene in the in the um, in the restaurant. But this yeah. is I do think it's sort of a, a gem that people overlook, but a, a nice character piece. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think Boomtown always benefits from the immediate comment most fans come up with. Well, it's better than Aliens of London and World War Three, you know, and obviously that's where the Slovene were introduced, and therefore this is an obvious comparison to to, to draw. But I I, th- I quite like it. But then again, I like the entire season uh, from two thousand and five. Um, it's probably not one of my favourites. The restaurant scene, as you say, stands out. But I I like it. I think for other reasons and 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 that's because there's so much of Cardiff on display Mm -hmm. and Ian alluded to that as well and I've I've been there a couple of times now um I I think the Bay Area in 2021 is actually very different not just from when Boomtown was filmed but even from just 10 years or so ago you know post Torchwood um so I do wonder whether you know, it's there's that much that's um, instantly recognisable. Not not just from Boomtown, obviously, um, because Impossible Astronaut, I think it was, um, was mm. uh, showcased Edie's Diner, which is now closed as well. Uh, the Doctor Who experience has gone from Cardiff, mm-hmm. although that didn't feature in Boomtown, uh, but some Slovene costumes did. <laughs> mm. So yeah, it's it's an interesting episode. Well, I uh, I have been reading, and I hadn't even really connected it until our, to our Nine Lives series until a couple of days ago, but I've been reading mm. uh, Doctor Who, The Shooting Scripts, uh, which was put out by Russell T. Davies. Boy, I had to look and see what it must have been shortly after this, this series was released. But it's been fun. Um, it's a beautiful book, full color, glossy pages, lots of pictures from the show, and it has the scripts for each episode as they were written at filming. And so if there were changes that were made in post-production, either additions or edits, um, those are not reflected in these scripts. You really do get to see the right. script, scripts as the actors and, and directors had them at the time of shooting. Mm-hmm. And so I recommend that if, as you're going through the Nine Lives series here, uh, if you can get a hold of the book, it it it's, it's fun to to read it uh, i don't i'm not clever enough to catch all the changes the subtle changes well i was going to ask them. you yeah i mean it, it, are there lots of changes because for me you know i have difficulty with um the novelizations just because i know the tv stories mm-hmm. so well mm-hmm. you know the last thing i really want to do is just read a book of the same story unless there are some notable changes and of course throughout the target series that is the case but i'm not sure i see why reading a script is attractive if, if it's really similar to the TV story. Actually, what I'm finding, I don't think there, there are that many substantive changes. But what you get is all the directors or the writers rather comments to the actor and to all the notes that the, that the writer has made about what the doctor is feeling when this line is said. Right. Or, or, now, that is or, a bit more or, interesting. Or, yeah. I, I, and it's just that part has been fascinating to me. To see mm. how closely the actors brought to life these coaching comments, directing comments that the writers had had put in there, um, and also to know what the writers were thinking was a motivation, or or, or you know just how much reaction was supposed to happen, or um, that more than anything, I think has been the revelation for mm. me. And so that you know, I'd recommend it for that. They also at the beginning of each 
uh, story, there is a couple of pages of introduction, and I, I haven't yet gotten to reading Boomtown, the actual scripts, but I read the introduction just before we started recording. And, you know, Russell T. talks very openly about this was an episode that had to save money. You know, this, <laughs> this was the budget episode. We'd just done World War II, and we were about to go into this, you know, major Dalek finale episode, and, and this one had to be cheap. And he, he has this sentence about, well, you know, you've got the amazing actress playing the Slovene. You've got the doctor talking to each other. Who needs laser beams? You know, with the, you put those two actors together in a, in a diner. And, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> well, it, it's funny, isn't it? When you look at the other episodes that were limited by budget. So Midnight, I think, is another obvious one. A single set, essentially, um, clearly written. Um, not to be expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the Doctor Light episodes. Um, uh, again, they they had a very distinct focus uh, because of the limitation. I, you know, in that case, the availability of the lead actor, and yet some of those stories, blink, you know, are mm-hmm. the most memorable. Mm-hmm. And um, it just shows that you you've got to be more than just different when you're coming up with a creative script. You've got to. You've got to really embrace the difference and make it interesting. Um, and, and for me, that's been missing, I would say, from mm. certainly modern Doctor Who. There's there's lots of experimentation with format, canon, history, um, you know, all manner of things. But all of these changes haven't really resulted in creative new stories, you know. And, and Boomtown, I think, you know, is quite unique once again, you know. You were just expressing some of your frustrations with uh, Modern Who, which leads to the discussions that have been going on already and will continue about this change, mm. the big change that's happening with New Doctor, New Showrunner. We don't know yeah, who either yeah. of those is yet. Um, and you and I just haven't had a chance to talk about it. What no. Are, what well, are you thinking? Well, well, Phil and I had... Um, a. a we recorded a ridiculously long podcast of which only about half <laughs> made it onto special 15. So I won't go over all of my feelings again. I listened back to it and I'm not even sure I <laughs> I um, stopped talking when I was breathing in. Um, and, and I think that's because, you know, it was, well, the news <laughs> was tantalizing and it was exciting and there I was responding. <laughs> uh, but so I'd rather ask you, um, you know, h- how do you feel? Mm. Uh, at the, were you surprised by the announcement? I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, they've been, the rumors have been going around for ages. It seems like three years, at least for the actor, in and out is pretty typical nowadays. I, well, three years or three seasons? Well, because she's, yeah, okay, know, this, three, se- three seasons. I know that yeah. the years... <laughs> get all timey-wimey nowadays. But um, I, as is often the case, would love to have had um, the doctor for a little longer. I wish we had doctors that spanned showrunners instead of showrunners that spanned doctors. I would like to see, I would like to see a different take on the same actor playing the role. Um, Mm. But we're not going to get that. So it is tantalizing, however, isn't it? I mean, and again, the usual example that's used when that comes up is what would Stephen Moffat's first season have been like had David Tennant stayed on for an additional year? Yeah, I would like to have seen that. That, that yeah. I really would have liked to have seen that. I, I don't know. I mean, I think Chibnall and Whitaker came as a package. They were always going to come as a package. I mean, they've worked together on Broadchurch uh, before. 
and I I don't know. I I find it a bit strange um, that they both choose to leave one year before the 60th anniversary. You know, that's going to be the biggest noise in Doctor Who um, for for year well <laughs> since the 50th, and they both voluntarily leave. Well, you know? all I know is that well, I would love to have more Whitaker. I think kind of the general consensus is that that the show was a little lackluster under Chibnall. Mm. Um, it wasn't anything horribly wrong, but there <clears throat> didn't seem to be anything horribly right either. Um, and so I am, I'm eager, I guess, for an, I guess, see, all this is just kind of, eh, uh, yeah, eh. Um, I, I'm ready for a new showrunner. I wasn't desperate for a new showrunner, but um, uh, I, I'll be excited to see it. Uh, I am, have more confidence in the casting of a doctor than I do of the selection of a showrunner. <laughs> Um, because you know we've had what fourteen doctors. If is oh, that right? Good. I've I've lost count myself now. But I mean, yes, I think technically if you, if you include if you include the war doctor and yeah, there hasn't been a bad one in the bunch. Uh, they've all been you know. No, I I, I do agree. Um, I, I I think it depends on how much people are interested in what's really going on behind the scenes because the changes um, that define the Chibnall era are huge. You know they are they are massive. The only thing, as I alluded to earlier, that hasn't really been affected is the standards of uh, of the stories. But you take a look at branding. Um, you take a look at uh, the way the episodes um, focus on political or environmental messages uh, without really trying to write it into the story. Um, the casting of a female doctor. Um, the the total lack of communication with fans in the way that the two previous showrunners um you know got us all very used to um shutting up shop in terms of the pr all of that is significant it's really significant it's a big big change and then for them to announce their departure when there's only nine episodes left to go you know was it really worth it you know it just feels as though, once again, you've got a team in and it, it clearly there have been some issues behind the scenes. I, I do not believe Whitaker and Chibnall would have announced their departure before the 60th anniversary of the show if everything had been going swimmingly. This, this fantastic plan that Chibnall talked about, three seasons and then out, you know, that would have probably been... Uh, originally scheduled to take place over three years so there would have been you know absolutely no consideration being given to the 60th anniversary of the show but given the delays with covid given the reduction in episode count for the upcoming series they could have quite easily stayed on for another year i'm pretty certain the bbc don't really want this kind of disruption on a major flagship show uh, that traditionally has brought loads of money in commercially one year before the 60th anniversary show. I don't um, know. On, know. The, on the other hand, a new new doctor, new showrunner always brings new attention and new interest. And, and so you can look at that both ways, I think. you can. Well, I, I think it's risky. I think it's really risky. And I, I can't think of any commercially minded individual at the BBC thinking... 59th anniversary, what do we need? A new doctor and a new showrunner. Let's cast the whole thing into uncertainty one year before, you know, uh, an opportunity for us to cash in. I mean, 
whether or not I'm, I mean, I, I think I am interested in it. It sounds like I'm interested <laughs> in it. I, I've, I've, I've convinced myself I'm interested in it. But what, what I really want to see is, 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 is a ray of light in terms of the show's future. I want to see a return to those stories. Um, I, I want to be fascinated by shooting scripts of, of the current era of Doctor Who and think, oh, look at what that writer said about what the Doctor does now. Whereas at this moment in time, I couldn't give two hoots because the stories are not interesting despite the absolute sledgehammer that's been taken to so many of the show's staples over the years. What was it you were saying about not breathing or not speaking? Yeah, I've, even gone, off, I've gone off on one again, haven't I? Sorry. <laughs> I must stop. <laughs> anyway, um, we got some un- we got some other questions um, that I'm not suggesting we attempt to answer, mm. but we will do on an upcoming show. I'm sure is um, you know well, who's going to be the new Doctor, who's going to be the new showrunner, who who at least is on the shortlist for both jobs. Um, do do you have any thoughts on that front? I do not, and it's just partly because. Doctor Who is still one of the only shows that I pay close attention to. I I don't have in my mind a list of actors from other things or directors of other things or showrunners of other things that I can pull out of a hat. Uh, I tend to just kind of be happy to wait and see what pops up. And, you know, usually the way I learn about them is that they end up affiliated with Doctor Who. <laughs> well, uh, in terms of speculation, listeners, Michelle has given you the most exciting morsel of <laughs> gossip there. We don't really know. We don't have much of a clue. And in all honesty, I'm pretty much in the same place as her, I'm afraid. Um, so <laughs> it's it's going to be an interesting couple of years. Um, the timing, as I said, I think is interesting because I, I'm trying to figure out and have been trying to figure out when they will need to announce Um who is going to be playing the Doctor and who's going to be in charge of the show. And the press release that came out last month was clear about the fact that there would be a new showrunner and there would be a new Doctor. And they were also clear about Jodie Whittaker's final episode being uh, broadcast in 2022. So that really does pose an interesting set of questions about timings um, because there's no way they're going to want to go into production without having announced who's going to be in those roles because fans will be all over it like a shot and they won't be in control of the news. I just wonder these days. I mean, there's, there's very little evidence of any kind of control of um, or, or, or forward thought <laughs> from the BBC on these issues and if I'm right and there has definitely been something gone awry with their plans then possibly the last thing on their minds is when they're going to announce these things I just don't have your cynicism oh well you've known me long enough now I should have rubbed (laughs) off on you by now Let's let's move off the uh, the, the news. Um, that to be fair, practically every Doctor Who podcast in production has been discussing over the last couple of weeks or over the last month or so now. Um, you've been watching Doctor Who from all eras, haven't you? And um, I, I think from all of the people I speak to, when I say what are you watching at the moment, you always come up with the longest list. 
I've been watching things, uh, been going back through some of the Peter Capaldi era. Hmm. I've been, um, we just watched, you and I both watched uh, in our own separate continents, we watched Frontier in Space. You had Ooh, mentioned yes. you'd seen it, so I had to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I also just recently watched The Gunfighters. So I think between those three, you do span quite a bit of Doctor Who history. Well, and Twice Upon a Time, you've watched as well, haven't you? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it it sounds as though. Well, so what's that? If if we're doing Doctor Bingo, then that's Doctor One, Three, Thirteen, and, and One. One. I said one. Did I not say one? Right, but I got two ones because I have the Gunfighters and I have Twice Upon a Time, which is ah. one one Doctor, two actors. Fair enough. And what was it like going back to visit? I mean, any, anything? Did you enjoy anything more than you expected to, or notice anything new? I think that. I mean, I enjoyed all of those. I I am a fan of the Gunfighters. I know that one always has mixed reviews among among fandom. It was a delight to go back and see uh, William Hartnell at probably one of his best, um, because he seems to be really on the spot through that whole story. Uh, you know, all the little gaffes and things are, are are not very evident in that. He seems to be really having a good time with it. Mm. Um, and, and so that was, you know, and for Doctor Who in the sixties, trying to do a Western, they actually, I thought did a kind of endearing job at it. So, um, that's nowhere near as bad as people think. No, no. I, I, I've watched Mm. it at least twice, maybe three times over the years. And, and, uh, I quite, in fact, when you get to the end and people start dying at the okay corral, it's, it's kind of very tragic. Um, yeah, it, well, it, it's this not fine as line, silly as people think either. I mean, no, no. Well, there's this fine line between comedy and tragedy, mm-hmm. and uh, gem- generally, Doctor Who veers pretty much down the middle, and that's the drama territory. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting with gunfighters because it is dark in places, and yet other parts are clearly played for laughs. Uh, but it's it's got a very fluid reputation. Uh, Twenty years or so ago, prior to it being released on VHS, then it was universally derided. And I, I don't remember when I first saw it. I think it must have been when it came out on VHS, and I I, I anticipated it, thinking well, it's, it's going to be terrible. And I remember enjoying it then. And and it's kind of experienced a resurgence within fandom's affections over the last 10 15 years and you you get most people start off by saying it's not as bad as its reputation and i enjoy it i it it's annoying for me uh, in as much as that song i forget what it's called now but you know the, the ballad one... the ballad of the last chance <sighs> saloon oh goodness me that that just goes round and round your head uh, i mean leeson used to call them earworms but my god that was that was awful when you found yourself whistling that. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind it. I wouldn't want them to do that frequently, but uh, I didn't mind it for that. <laughs> but actually, you know, you said a couple of days ago that you were going to rewatch Twice Upon a Time, and I kind of, mm. I kind of went, ugh. Um, I had only ever watched it the one time, and my memory of it was that I really struggled with it. That there were good mm. parts, but that I also really struggled with it. And and wanting to have stuff to talk about with you, um, I thought, well, okay, I'll go back and watch it. And it's actually interesting to have seen it after watching what I consider a pretty good first Doctor story in The Gunfighters. Because with Twice Upon a Time, 
there really are a lot of lovely things. I love the captain, uh, Mark Gaddis's character. I love yeah. that whole that whole story arc is beautiful. Um, the Capaldi doctor, you know, is enjoyable. It's nice to see Bill again. I think. Oh, who plays the first doctor in that? Is it um, Bradley? Bradley, David yes, Bradley. of course, David Bradley. Um, I think his performance is great. I love David Bradley as the first doctor. What really bothers me, and it's a significant bother, is the way they wrote the first doctor. Um, <laughs> you only get so many lines when you're in a multi-doctor thing and you're in, you know, it's an only an hour and there's a lot they're trying to accomplish. And for that much of the, the way they portray the first doctor is as a sexist jerk. And I have watched all the First Doctor episodes that you can watch, and I have never had that as an overriding um, overriding sense of the First Doctor's character. There is so much beauty in that character that could have been forefronted, and instead they went for cheap laughs. I Ugh. think this is a cultural thing, uh, I, and I've had this conversation before, and I, I've heard people say the same thing and it really spoiled some people's enjoyment of it um first of all i think the entire episode is absolutely glorious it was wonderful to revisit again and uh, there's, there's a lot about it that i'd forgotten i thought the way the testimony uh, were written into it was really clever i think it worked really well uh, the performances that you mentioned i think were all fantastic uh, from everyone and it just hit all of the right buttons for me uh, nostalgia wise um i don't have a major issue with the way the first doctor was portrayed and i don't think it's all that inaccurate i th i think william hartnell was given lines back in the day that were innocuous for the time period and it involved making tea you know polly put the kettle on um, all this kind of stuff. There was he, loads of he that. He and Polly were only in like one or two episodes together. I think that the memory of that, I, I don't, I don't think that was as big a thing as as the memory of that. It was it was, it was in the War Machines and it was elsewhere. And it's not just Polly. Uh, it was it was with his granddaughter. It was with Vicky. Uh, it was through, evident throughout his entire era. And there are a number of incidents that stand out a mile when you watch it through a 2021 filter or indeed even when this was broadcast a few years ago what Moffat did and what I think he it's fair game to criticize him for if you're inclined to do so is that he took that and he ramped it up and he played it for laughs now me being the kind of person I am I'm sorry I found it funny I really did I didn't find it offensive I think this was noticed and commented on far more by American audiences than it was by UK audiences. And I think there may be a cultural difference there in terms of the way these things are interpreted. Um, so because it, it simply wouldn't have broke the surface of, um, of most people's viewing sensibilities over here. There, there may well have been a few... Uh, people who thought well that's going a little bit close to the bone and it's unnecessary and then you've got some fans saying it's completely disrespectful of the memory of the first doctor and i certainly don't go that far but i can understand i i'm i'm more i guess i'm more in that camp that that you know i love the first doctor and the way the first doctor was written i don't think did him justice i don't i don't i don't mm. i don't think did him justice and yeah i think it was a little 
I guess you could say disrespectful of the first doctor so yeah and i i i, I respect your disrespectfulness yeah. <laughs> but hey! i uh, <laughs> but I, I i think it's um i think it is interesting and again you might not want to do this now but when you watch william hartnell stories keep an eye out for it because it's subtle uh but it's but it's evident it is evident I it's would not think subtle that... in twice upon a time that's no. that's the only real difference no no and i would think that i would be someone for whom those things would would and it's, and I'm not saying it's absent in that time period, but I, it is certainly not the impression I come away from of mm. the first Doctor, and it was one of the primary character points that they that they made in Twice Upon a Time, which is just sad because every so much of the rest of it was was beautiful, mm. was wonderful. Yeah, it's it's interesting to to observe the degree of impact it had uh, for for some people, but uh, whereas it it, it didn't uh, for. For me, uh, and bearing in mind, I think it's probably true to say that Twice Upon a Time wasn't really the final Capaldi episode. That was more like an epilogue or a kind of um, postscript because everything had ended the previous season. And I think um, Stephen Moffat just wanted to have a Christmas special. And had he not written this, it wouldn't have been guaranteed Doctor Who would have been on a telly um, that, that Christmas. Um and if if you consider all of that, the speed at which it was written, um, and I, I just think it hits so many right notes, and um, it, it's there are other there are other stories that I'm far more either disinterested in or have you know little quirky character points, or um, you know Matt Smith pronouncing metabolus, which is absolutely obviously criminal, um, mm-hmm. and um, you know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, but uh, it's you know, that kind of stuff bothers me far more. But I I, I loved revisiting it, and it had been such a long time. And, and Capaldi was so comfortable in the role, you know. He's he's or he certainly seems that way. There's there's none of the early angst um, that you can see in his first season, and um, or even his first few episodes. He's nowhere near as abrasive there. And I I just love that you interpretation know, of the Doctor. Actually, that is that's a good point that. In his final speech, Capaldi's doctor hits three different times, I think, on kindness, be kind. Um, and it's it's said like three different ways. He was mm. such, he had to be just about the least kind doctor <laughs> at the beginning, Peter Capaldi. And, and I remember the first time I heard that final speech, I thought, well, this is odd because kindness was not, <laughs> was not a main character trait of I this, don't of this, know. but, but I no, don't no know. let me, and so I thought, I've, as I've thought about that, I think that is part of his arc with Clara in particular. Um, I have to look more at Bill, but, but his kind of becoming emotionally intelligent as he, as you know, yeah. It definitely the intention. That was the intention. There's no question of that. Um, I, I I don't think he was ever unkind. I think you have to define any person, actually, not even a character in a TV show, by their behaviour and their actions, not just by what they say. And you take a look at Capaldi's first season and a lot of his second, and then if you compare what he says to what he does and there is a gradual coming together of those two mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. over his over his mm-hmm. um arc and he he's never acted unkindly 
but this particular incarnation of the Doctor was not gifted with comm skills. And I like that <laughs> because other Doctors have had them in spades. And they've just walked into places and owned the situation, whereas Capaldi's all over the place um, uh, on, on a number of occasions. And Clara, sometimes it's a little bit clunky because it's so on the nose, has to try and assist him um, relearn how to form human relationships. But I think the way you assess or the way you can assess a doctor is the output, the outcome, his actions um everything else is transitory and ebbs and flows with each regeneration and uh, is not incapable of learning within any one incarnation and capaldi i think it's just beautiful yeah um, I, I i love it when he's rude to people <laughs> he's brilliant <laughs> how do you, know, you james <laughs> i do i do <laughs> he's, um, he's, he's just so abrasive and uh he's so sharp uh, i mean this is a this is a time traveler from an alien world who understands things that you know humans are taking centuries to get any idea of wouldn't you be slightly frustrated? <laughs> it w- and, and if you were capable of changing your entire personality every few years, wouldn't it be possible that one of those incarnations could be slightly less patient with the human race than others? That's all Capaldi is. He and the first doctor kind of have that that similarity. But what I was saying is I like the story arc and I do think it works. I think if when you, you when you watch through it, this idea that by the time he regenerates one of the most important concepts he wants to leave with his successor is, you know, you have to be kind. And she is far, far more so naturally than, than he was. I wonder if yeah. that influences the incarnation. <laughs> uh, well, he's, he's clearly doing two things with that speech. And I remember it being a bit speechy at the time. And it, it had much more of an impact on me when I watched it last week than mm-hmm. when I watched it when it was transmitted. And he's clearly supposed to emulate Matt Smith's final leaving speech as well which is uh has two audiences uh within the fiction of the mm-hmm. show he's 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 basically telling his future incarnation this is how you live this is how you do it do it my way not the way that you will obviously develop yourself uh, and also trying to create some kind of emotional investment from the audience to bridge the uh unsettling change i'd say i'd say there's actually a third audience and the third audience is the doctor him or herself you know, he's actually yeah. That's what I mean. Too, that's yeah. what I mean. That's the same as my I mean, first not, point. Not not the new doctor, but the doctor who is dying is also addressing him or herself. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. So basically, he's speaking to everybody, um, which which is fine. <laughs> but but I, I I think I think it was kind of heavy, um, and I don't like the idea that it's it, you know the regeneration is now, you know, uh, it, has, it has got a speech um, that someone's got to deliver and if Whitaker does that next year then you know it's <laughs> I'm sure she will just I I will just tie these two conversations that we've had together in a single question um and this is a nice easy question not designed in any way to put you on the spot will they cast another female I have no idea I I have no idea Well what do you think 
I think they're almost damned if they do and damned if they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but but and the other the flip side of that is whether they cast a female or something else, I'm sure that person will be wonderful. I'm sure that person. Will. I know. I, I just they have, like I said, they have not yet missed with with the casting of the Doctor and the Doctor um, itself. Although he's he's obviously what the story is all about. Is actually incidental. And as I think it was it McCoy or was it Baker? I forget. Someone said it was actor proof, and I completely agree. And uh, it's it's it, that is not the most exciting thing about the future of the show for me. Um, but clearly, that's the focus uh, from fandom, and I think from the media as well are they going to cast another female actor in the role of the doctor so we shall see um i i do think it's difficult because i think the overriding driver at the bbc will be commercials and if they're when i say commercials i mean the commercial position uh, and i obviously don't know these days what position the show is in in terms of its financial appeal um, around the world. If you believe the rumours, it's less successful now. And if that's the case, if someone within their commercial department decides the reason for that is because a female doctor doesn't work, then I think that voice, if they're going to be pushing for something else <laughs> different, then uh, it could be quite loud. But... If they cast anyone other than another woman actor or another woman in the role, I think everyone is going to say that's a sign of failure. I don't think so. I'm not going to say it's a sign of failure. So if they cast another white bloke or even a person of colour... Which I think think that could be likely. I I think that scenario... Yeah, I I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Um... But um, would 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 that be tantamount to saying, well, we've done this one now, we're now moving on to something else? And if that's the case, is that can, not entirely the wrong approach towards it? No, I think you cast, you know, you cast the actor who is is going to do a wonderful job with it this next time. There, we this doctor, Doctor Who, no longer has a limit to regeneration. So if this next doctor doesn't happen to be female there is every opportunity to have another female doctor down the road well that's very true um yeah it just depends on whether they're i mean it can't be an easy conversation within the bbc can it no no it that's really why I, can't. I, I kind of feel for them because i hope they'll try and do the right thing but figuring out what the right thing to do is is not always easy but is actually the entire nature of the doctor's character that's all he does or she does. It's <laughs> all they do. <laughs> Pronoun hell. <laughs> and isn't isn't it wonderful? Yes, Michelle, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> anyway, I think we've uh, rambled on long enough. Thank you so much, listeners. It has been good to be with you for another episode. Join us again next time on episode 326. We will be back on episode 326. That much is for sure. Uh, We're due a desert island visit. I'm trying to think who hasn't been to a desert island. Is it just Ian? Has he been too busy with the Ninth Doctor? Have you left Ian off of all those? That'll be great. That'll be great. No, we've not left him off. It's just that we haven't got to him yet. Okay. <laughs> Ian's been very busy. Ian's been on a boat. I mean, the last place you probably want to go is a desert island. 
You know, I, I, that's I, right. He was on a boat for a while, a real yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah. It didn't yeah. sink though, so that's a good thing. So. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah. So we may well have a return to the desert island, or failing that, then we may well have a chat about Big Finish, which has been notably absent uh, from this podcast, and it's extremely unusual as well, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, I, we, we kind of in that space, Michelle, between reaching the end of our current programming and knowing Doctor Who is going to be restarting again fairly soon on TV. So we don't want to start any, you know, huge um, series. Uh, but uh, but we've, we've got a few things in the in the hopper. Um, Phil has been watching The Romans as well, and I know he's very keen to, to get involved in that discussion. And um, I'm sure Brent will be really annoyed with us for talking about Twice Upon a Time for so long because that's one of his favourite episodes. I also think I said he should come on and talk with us. I think that was one of his Christmas picks, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we shall see. We will be back next month, dear listeners. Michelle, it's been an absolute joy, as it always is, uh, to have you on the show and uh, talk lots of Doctor Who. And listeners, we'll be back in one month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Take care. So fill up your glasses. And join in the song The law's right behind you And it won't take long So come you coyotes And howl at the moon Till there's blood upon the sawdust In the last year